Good morning, church. It is good to be with God's people in God's house today. And, you know, we have spent some time recently exploring just some of the details of how Acts 2.42 plays out in biblical community. And it's part of our BC 24 series, BC for Biblical Community in 2024. And you may remember we started by tracing how gospel conversations in Acts chapter 2 turned into... Uh, gospel transformation, and through a series of steps that led eventually then, of course, to biblical community right there in Acts 2.42. And so we just started unpacking the individual components of biblical community expressed right there in that very verse. And so we, we talked about uh, uh, being a people of commitment because it says they devoted themselves. And, and then we, we walked through the power of God's holy word and what it means to us and what we believe and how the core doctrines of the faith bind us together as a body of believers. And, and then last Sunday, we got down to the details of what the fellowship, this koinonia, what it means in the life of believers. And remember, it, it has to do with belonging. And we said, it's just a piece of cake, right? Right? That's what I said. Yeah. Except it, it's not easy for sure. But it is, remember that piece of cake that I just brought out and callously ate in front of you? You may remember. Um, it, it's like that. It's something to be just delightfully enjoyed. There is something delightful and amazing when we live in the intimate bond of fellowship. What God intends for us in this biblical community of our church family. Well, today we're moving to the next phrase of Acts 2.42. And um, let's go ahead and read that verse together. We'll put it on screen for you. Acts 2.42 says, read it with me, would you? And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And that phrase there, the breaking of bread, that's what's on our plates for today. See what I did there? All right. I thought that was pretty good. Anyway, I know some of you are like, wait, wait, breaking of bread? Are we talking about eating here? Because I'm real good with that. All right. I got this one down. I can handle this. Like I, I haven't spent much time really studying or memorizing God's word. And, you know, I, I kind of struggle with this idea of vulnerability and transparency and authentic koinonia fellowship. But here's one that I have nailed down. Like I'm good enjoying a meal. I know how to do this. I'm all in. Let's go. <laughs> all right. Well, hang on. Hang on. Let's look and see what God's Word is, is telling us here. We're going to look into what it means to th this breaking of bread in Acts 2.42. Because I'm going to tell you up front, it is not telling us that they devoted themselves to bringing a dozen donuts to class every Sunday morning. All right? It's not telling us they devoted themselves to get together and go enjoy some Mexican food every week after church, all right? That, that wasn't it. There's something deeper going on here, so let's find out what it is. So Luke uses this term, the breaking of bread, and he's referring to the very same thing that Paul would later refer to as the Lord's Supper. Okay, so very different cultural context than what we know today, but get the picture here. The early believers, they were daily enjoying time together over a meal with one another. All right, this was like a daily occurrence, the best we can uh, ascertain from the book of Acts. They just ate together regularly. It was part of their koinonia fellowship. They were enjoying meals together. And, and by the way, before we move further, let me just kind of venture off and share this with you. Guys, the statistics are absolutely astounding that show how powerfully stabilizing it is 
when people and families in particular will sit down regularly at the table to enjoy a meal together. It's astounding what it, what it does in a child's life as they're growing up. Parents, I'm telling you, one of the best things you can do for your kids is find a way to eat together regularly as a family at the table. Powerful, powerful thing. Turn off the TV, put away the phones, because there is something in the way God designed us that helps us to bond together over a meal. And he designed us to... Um, to need that as we grow up in family life. All right, well, coming back to Acts chapter number two, that was free for you this morning. No, won't charge you extra. All right, very unlike us, those early believers, they were having meals together with their Koinonia fellowship like every day, and they concluded those meals with this time of worship. Like they, they just they had basically communion, like the Lord's Supper, what we just observed. And they would do this like on a regular daily basis at the conclusion of their meals. They remembered the Lord's sacrificial death. They looked forward to his glorious return, just what we do when we observe the Lord's Supper. Now, over the centuries, the, 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 as the face of church gatherings has kind of changed, so has the breaking of bread. The, facing, the face of that has changed as well. Not its core purpose, but we just don't observe it exactly the same way as they did back in Acts chapter number two uh, in what we now call communion. Again, very different cultural context, but out of practicality, we don't start with a full meal together every time we observe communion. But we have held on to the essential elements as scripture directs us to, the bread and the cup representing, of course, the body and blood of Jesus given for our salvation, what we just did. Now, the key takeaway here, and so if you kind of zoned out into what's for lunch, because I planted that in your mind a moment ago, come right back, all right? Zoom in here. The key takeaway so far from Acts 2.42 and this breaking of bread is that it points us to how they worshiped together as they remembered and celebrated the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. And that, how a biblical community worships, that is what we're going to explore today. The early church was devoted to regularly worshiping together with their koinonia, fellowship of believers, and so must we be devoted to corporate worship together as a church body. So in this morning's outline, we're going to look first at how we worship how we worship. And we're going to put several things on screen for you. You may want to write them down as we walk through them. Here's the deal. Today, two millennia removed from the early church in Acts, this biblical community of believers continues to gather together for regular weekly worship. And, and you know, going all the way back to the early, to creation, in fact, in scripture, we see that God established weekly rhythms. God set that up. We move into the heart of the Old Testament law, and we find especially in books like Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, how that God built on that weekly rhythm of creation as he established these regular prescribed worship practices for his people. And then that regular rhythm of worship continues into the New Testament. It's borne out in the book of Acts. We see it in um, the, the letters that Paul wrote to churches, which comprise so much of the New Testament. And now, there certainly has been a shift 
over the centuries. Things have changed a little bit. Our worship doesn't look exactly the same as theirs. I mean, just take something as simple as in Acts chapter 2, they were primarily gathering in people's homes and in uh, the, the public spaces like the temple courts. Whereas now we have these dedicated church spaces specifically for the purpose of corporate worship together like we have here, like you came to the church building. But the point is, even though it looks different, we continue to gather together in this place for regular weekly worship with brothers and sisters in Christ in this regular rhythm of worshiping our God together. And when we come together for worship, there are some specific biblical elements that we always include. That's what we're going to list for you here on screen. The first of those is fellowship. Fellowship together is part of our worship. Well, again, we covered fellowship last week with Koinonia. Remember, piece of cake. Well, what we need to understand for today is that there is something worshipful when God's followers come together to fellowship with common purpose and just spending time together and enjoying one another. I, think of it this way. I know as a dad, okay, in those very rare moments, they are rare anymore, when both of my kids are under the same roof with Stephanie and me, in those moments, we may be doing something that seems of little consequence. Maybe we're just all sitting on the couch or we're watching a movie or uh, maybe sitting at the table and playing a board game. But in those moments, I'm gonna tell you, I sit back and I take it in and I celebrate and I rejoice. Uh, I take pure delight in seeing my family together, enjoying time together. Parents, you know what I'm talking about? Anybody with me there? And, and I believe that the Lord uh, experiences similar delight when we, his children, when we come together and we're, we're sharing stories and we're laughing together and we fellowship as believers and we build one another up and we're uh, stirring one another up to love and good works as scripture tells us and we share about the goodness of God in our lives and we're sharing in celebrations as well as sorrows together, even in that fellowship there is a worshipful element as part of how we worship. That's part of the reason why in Hebrews 10.25, we're told that we should not neglect to meet together because it's part of our worship and it delights the Lord. Another element that's part of our worship is music. Necessarily, the music is going to be part of it. And that doesn't surprise you, does it? I mean, we had a lot of music leading up to, to this point in our service even today. And it's because we find songs of worship scattered across the Old Testament and into the New Testament as well. Of course, we have this book that we call Psalms, right? It's 150 songs packaged together. Uh, and so what we know is that music is a gift from God. He gifts some of us, or I should say some of you, with musical talent to, to write music, to play music, or to, to, to sing beautifully. It's a gift from God for us to hear it and to enjoy music. And music is to be used in God's worship. Not because it's entertaining to us, makes us feel good, but because God enjoys it. We know that because we're told in Scripture to sing to the Lord, to make a joyful noise to our Creator because He enjoys it. The Bible instructs us to praise Him with musical instruments and with our voices. So don't come back at me with, well, Jason, you know, I just don't like to sing, so I don't do that. Well, let me tell you, even if you're no good at it, God likes for you to sing as part of His body, collectively praising Him, bringing Him an offering of praise in music. 
All right, we're going to continue on. The next element we talk about is in, in, in terms of how we worship is prayer. Prayer is going to be part of our corporate worship times together. Now, spoiler alert, if you have read ahead in Acts 2.42, and you have because we read it together just a moment ago, <laughs> you know that next week we're going to be talking about prayer in more detail. But suffice it to say for this morning that corporate prayers are going to continue to be part of what we do when we come together to worship. Like Mark has led us in prayer this morning already. Part of the reason we pray together in the con is because it is a conscious act of humbling ourselves before our gracious God. In prayer, we recognize that we are hopelessly insufficient on our own. As we pray, we acknowledge our absolute dependence upon him. In prayer, we declare our trust in his faithfulness to meet our needs and to provide for us. Again, there's a lot more to prayer, of course, but the core of our public core uh, corporate prayers together is acknowledging that he is God and we are not. It's an act of worship as we fall upon his great grace in prayer and we confess together that we need him. We move to the next element and that is the word of God. The word of God is going to be part of how we worship. We center our times of worship around the truth of God's word. It's in the songs that we sing and in the prayers that we pray and in the messages that we preach. We teach and preach God's word as we learn from it and we allow God's word to shape our perspectives, to shape even our very lives. Now, sometimes... Uh, folks from our congregation, you guys are so gracious and you um, encourage me with compliments on how good the sermon was. I mean, it's usually on weeks when someone else was preaching, all right, but, but that's okay. <laughs> no, you guys, are, you are so uh, gracious to encourage me, but you know, it's not my oh-so-eloquent words that make it good. It's the power of the Holy Spirit who works through his word to, to apply biblical truth to our hearts and to our lives. The Holy Spirit of God does that great work. I just get to be the messenger here. And you know, it's the same in your, uh, your Bible study groups where you center your time again around like the name implies, Bible study about digging deep into the scriptures because we know that his word is life and so we turn to it and we learn from it and we live by it. I believe God is delighted when we, his people, look to his word for direction and we surrender ourselves to be obedient to what his word tells us. We find the word of God. Another element as we continue in how we worship is going to be celebration of the gospel. We celebrate the gospel here. The gospel is central to biblical community. It's what brings us together as a church. You take out the gospel and we've got ourselves a social club. And that's not why we come together. We center around the gospel. It's the gospel that transforms our hearts, that saves our souls, that makes us a new creation in Christ Jesus. The gospel is what drives us toward ministry. The gospel is at the heart of our worship and our service and our preaching and our teaching and our ministry. It's about the gospel. The gospel and how the gospel or how God gets glory unto himself through the gospel, that is the central theme of God's holy word. And so we celebrate the gospel each week here at First Hurst. Our fellowship is based on the gospel. The gospel is the theme of the songs that we sing. In our preaching, it's always my goal to articulate the gospel at some point during the message. Now, it may be rather succinct in some weeks, like something as simple as Jesus died in our place, 
to pay the penalty for our sins so that by faith we can be forgiven and receive eternal life in him. It may be just that brief. Or at other times, the entire message will be a greater exposition of the gospel and what that means in our lives. But it's always included, and I'm telling you, we do not apologize for that. Amen? We're going to continue to come back to the gospel. We celebrate the gospel also as we observe the ordinances of the church like we have today. Already this morning, as the people of God, we've remembered our Savior's sacrifice through communion, his body given for us, his blood shed to make atonement for our sins. This is the gospel message that we celebrate in communion. Later, at the end of the service, we're going to baptize, praise the Lord, we're going to baptize three new believers right over here, again, to picture the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior. Their baptism is not only going to do that, but it's also going to announce to all of us who witness it that the gospel is given given them new life in Christ, that they're new creations in Christ Jesus, raised to walk in newness of life like Romans 6 says. And so in these two ordinances, both communion and baptism, we celebrate the gospel of Christ as we worship our God. We continue on in this list of how we worship, and the next one is giving. Oh, hoped he wasn't going to go there, right? You know what? Going all the way back to early chapters of the Old Testament, we find the practice of bringing offerings to the Lord and even the practice of tithing specifically. And I'll admit that term that we use so often, tithing, that is a very churchy word, isn't it? I mean, have you ever heard that word in any context outside of church? No, probably not. It's a churchy word. And and so most of us have just come to a point where we associate tithing with giving in some way, whatever that amount may be. But technically, the tithe, by definition, is giving 10% of our income, our resources, our increase to the Lord. And so we see this difficult practice of giving 10%. And I say difficult because, hey, let's just be honest. 10% is a big chunk of a paycheck, right? But we see it scattered all across the Old Testament. It's just part of living as God's people. We find it addressed in the New Testament as well. From Jesus' own words, he talked about it all the way to the book of Hebrews. Paul talked about giving in some of the New Testament books, uh, the letters that he wrote as well. Generously giving of our resources to the work of the gospel, now through the Lord's church, for a koinonia, fellowship of believers. That's just a normal thing. And I'm going to tell you, it is so very rewarding. This generosity, investing in the gospel, is a critical element of biblical community and of our worship. From the earliest days of tithing all the way to today, giving of our resources, financial gifts to the Lord, now given through his church, it's always been an act of worship. We worship the Lord as we give in faith because we're trusting him that he will be faithful to his promise to provide for all our needs. We worship the Lord as we give to him in obedience because we're humbling ourselves to follow the instructions that our Lord has given us in his word. We worship the Lord as we give in love because we love the Lord and because we love the gospel and because we love his church and we love the kingdom and we love the ministry of reaching others with this beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ that has transformed our own lives. And so... Before we leave today, you're going to be reminded that giving is part of our corporate worship as a body of believers. One other that we put on this list, how we worship, serving. 
is an act of worship as well. Like so many of you do each week, I am just constantly humbled as I consider the number of volunteers it takes to make church happen, so to speak, here at First Hurst. And you guys are so faithful to serve. You give your time and you give your energy and you give of your talents and your giftings to serve in all kinds of ways here in the Lord's church. And that might be in the parking lot or driving a golf cart to help people get into the building easier or greeting at a door. Or maybe you're handing out bulletins when people come in or maybe you're helping to direct folks to a classroom or manning a check-in station for kids or making coffee for, for classes. Or maybe you're getting snacks ready for the kids class or you're a teacher in a classroom or maybe a director or a helper in one of the many classrooms across our campus and, or, or maybe you're uh, serving on our safety team or maybe you play a musical instrument here on platform. You sing in the choir or on praise team or maybe you're pushing buttons back there in one of our tech booths or maybe you're manning a camera or leading prayer ministry or leading outreach ministry or going on mission trips at great personal expense and I'm sure I've left out a whole lot of other ways that you serve week in and week out because many of you just serve behind the scenes in ways that I don't even know about. Like this morning, before the first service, one of our members, Harvey, was out there cleaning out the fountain, getting the leaves and junk out of there, and he does it week in and week out, and I forget about it because, you know, the fountain's just there. But it's an act of service to worship and honor our God. And it's a beautiful thing. This serving is together we help to guide all generations to know and follow Christ. It's another offering of praise to our great God, the one who's worthy uh, and the object of all our worship. And so I want to say to you, church, thank you for serving as an act of worship unto our God. Now, in the time we have remaining this morning, I want to turn our attention from how we worship to dwell instead on why we worship. Why are we in this rhythm? Why do we worship in these ways? I'm going to give you four plain reasons why we worship together as a body of believers in biblical community. The first is because God calls us to worship. He instructs us. In fact, he invites us to come into his presence and worship him. First Chronicles 26, 19, uh, excuse me, 1 Chronicles 16, 29 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory do his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Luke chapter 4, verse 8 is where Jesus said, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. He rightly calls for the exclusive worship of his creation. And I'm going to tell you, before the rocks start crying out in praise to our God, let us be obedient to his call to worship him. Amen? A second reason why we worship is because of what he's done. And I'm going to tell you what he's done is good. But we have to be careful here. We can't drift into this heart of entitlement and decide, well, I'm going to give God my worship as long as he gives me what I want and what I need. You know, a reciprocal relationship. No, that's not what I'm talking about when I say that we worship him because of what he's done. I'm not saying, you see, God's worthiness, it is not tied to his benevolent acts toward us. God is worthy of our worship whether we receive good blessings from him or not. He does not owe us anything, and yet we still owe him our exclusive worship, regardless of what benefits we may or may not receive. So we have to be delicate here. 
But still, I'm making that statement that we worship him because of what he's done. And here is what I do mean. That when we reflect on what he's done, man, we just can't help but be thankful as we recognize his goodness and his grace and his faithfulness and his mercy and his love toward us. And that moves us toward worship. We are motivated to worship because of what he's done. Let me give you a third reason why we worship. And you may think, well, that should be the first. <laughs> this is just where it fell on the list, okay? We worship because God is worthy. In fact, fundamentally, we could say that this may be the greatest reason why we worship because that word itself, worship, is in recognition that God is worthy. The word worship is a shortened form of the old English word worth-ship. Worth-ship. It literally means acknowledgement of worth. And that's what we do when we worship our God. We acknowledge, we recognize his worth, that he is worthy. In fact, he is holy. I'm going to read to you a couple passages of scripture. You will not see them on the screen. And I just want you to know that's my fault because I didn't get the information to the folks that serve each week to prepare our slides. But Isaiah in chapter 6, he, he was blessed by God to see this vision of the Lord on his throne, and he wrote about it. In Isaiah 6, he said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. These are angelic beings. Each had six wings. Hang on to that. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And one called to another. So these seraphim, these angels in the throne room of God are in this constant refrain declaring to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then over in Revelation, John the apostle was also blessed to see this great vision of the Lord, several visions in fact, and the book of Revelation we have records that. And in chapter four of Revelation, verse number eight, he said, um, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, does that sound familiar? Here's these seraphim again, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease. So there's this constant refrain. They never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And he goes on and shows how recognizing the holiness of God led to the worship of God. When the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, that's the Lord, the one who lives forever, then the 24 elders elders fall down before him who's seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy, there's the acknowledgement of God's worthiness. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. You see, we worship him because he is worthy. He is holy. He's the creator and sustainer of all that is marvelous, majestic, glorious, and altogether holy. We worship him alone because he alone is worthy of our worship. In conclusion this morning, one final reason to share with you why we worship. And it's simply because it delights the Lord. And man, that is reason enough right there. 
I've touched on several things that I believe delight the Lord. And let me tell you, anything we can do that brings joy and delight to the heart of our God is worth doing. In fact, it is worth pledging our lives to do it. And so may all of our worship as a body of believers, may it be for his pleasure, his joy, and his delight, because we're not here for us. We are here for him. And so as I pray each Sunday in preparation for our times of worship, I pray that God will smile upon his church, upon his people at First Hearst. And I don't mean smile with benevolent blessings. I mean, I pray that God with just even a raw, giddy delight will smile because we, his church, his people, this biblical community of believers are devoting ourselves to this weekly rhythm of gathering together to worship him and him alone here at First Baptist Hearst. And to that, all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, our God, for revealing to us your worth, your worthiness, your holiness. Thank you for your word that directs us, shows us how you've invited us to come into your presence and worship you who we are so unworthy, and yet you invite us to come. This morning, as we prepare to respond in faith to your word, it may be that one of those ways that we worship and how we worship, just you just spoke to someone's heart and said, you know, you've not been part of that. It's time for you to worship me in this way. Or God, it may be this morning that you would just call some of us to the altar to just Throw up our hands and praise you again and again because all that we have is a hallelujah to praise the Lord and that you would receive worthy and glory and honor and praise from us today. God, I pray that you will continue to smile with giddy delight over the worship that we bring to you today. All this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.